0: God's men should never mistake the, the humbleness and the lowliness and the long suffering of God as if He's forgotten about our sin. I mean, He has forgiven us of our sin. He remembers them no more. But wait a minute, judgment begins at the house of God. You're going to die, and everything you lived for outside of the will of Christ is going to burn. Everything. A fortress is strength, a fortress is might not only a center of defense but a place of strategic planning and offense our god does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us he expects us to take up his banner and fight the darkness with his light you want to know what the biggest problem with america is? the pulpit in this country Gave in to public pressure, gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have an interesting subject to cover today, but first let me give an introduction to our media platforms. Please go ahead and hit the follow or subscribe button to the podcast platform in which you're listening to us upon. We have several social media platforms with all sorts of material you can listen to and read. If you're listening through YouTube, please be sure to hit that subscribe and like button as well as the notification bell. Yes, I know it's a lot, but. That's kind of how the system works. Check us out at our fan page on Facebook when you type in the at simple, our Mighty Fortress. That page is growing more and more every day, we want to see it grow more as we get more content out. You can also visit us on our website, r_mightyfortress.com. We have a host of media there where everything is based, articles, videos, and even our merch store, and if you feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so through the website and our established PayPal link. And of course, if we've helped you in some way through our work, feel free to write to us at our, our mightyfortress at gmail.com. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I want to discuss about what it means to have boldness or fearlessness. These words are used in several different contexts today, and they don't always paint an accurate picture of what they truly mean. To illustrate these meanings, let me give an example found in the Bible, in the book of First Samuel. We're going to look at a tremendous story of a young man named David. There are many things that we can learn from his life, both positive and negative, but this example given in, a, in his younger life is truly a picture of how we as Christians should be today. First, we're going to analyze some of the more subtle details of the story, but I want to be able to tell the story though in a manner in which you can imagine each of the scenes that pass. I kind of like doing that with stories I read as if I'm the one that's witnessing it, it really brings out what the story is saying. And it really helps with your understanding and my understanding. We'll then see the character of three different men start to emerge. This is going to have the same type of breakdown in our modern society. Then we're going to look at what it means to actually be bold and fearless in our everyday lives. We are all presented with challenges and even more so recently due to the government, we will see the principles of God and what he wants us to rest upon and to really help guide us in our everyday life. With that introduction, let's get right into this. Let's first look at the story in question and see if we can identify some characteristics of these three particular men. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17, and starting in verse 3, here's what we see. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on, the, on one side and Israel on a mountain on the other side. And there was a great valley between them. So it's talking about the two armies that are about to uh, meet each other in battle. In verse 4 it says, And there went a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. So it's was giving kind of a description of how pricey this armor was and how huge it was. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and the target of brass upon him, between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the uh, spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and ba- the one bearing the shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto him, why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am I am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If ye be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. Now, in this story, right off the bat, we see a major problem. This problem is not only that these Philistines want to war and to conquer the nation of Israel, but their champion is unmet by anyone from Israel. By the biblical account, the man was a massive human being. Let me try to give us sort of a modern comparison in a way. If you're familiar with the athlete Brock Lesnar, the WWE wrestler and the now retired UFC heavyweight champion, he is one massive individual. He's only 6'3". Now 6'3 is pretty tall, but he's only 6'3", and he's 286 pounds. Now, there are men who are that heavy, but it's mostly fat. Most of that weight comes from his massive body and bone structure. It's unbelievable with a smaller amount of body fat. Now he's put on a lot of weight since his, uh, uh, WWE days, but let me tell you what, his body frame is absolutely massive. Just his sheer size would send fear into the hearts of the fighters that he would be against that particular night. Now, of course, this doesn't even compare to Goliath and his height. Because he was estimated over nine feet tall. I'm sure that he wasn't just some super tall, fat dude, fat guy. He was a trained killer. I'm sure that he was also a man who relied on his strength and his size in battle. It it would be a major advantage. He was quite bold and fearless that he could take any man from the army of Israel. Now, think about that. He stepped out from amongst his brethren there and his army. And he said, don't worry, guys, I got this. Let's not have a major battle and lose any of our, any of our brothers here. Let me just go out and kill their champion and we'll just take him over. He was that confident. He was a battle hardened veteran as well. And he believed that he could take any man toe to toe. We're also going to see more of his frame of mind a bit later as we progress. But let's look at the next major character in the story. Now we have the king of Israel named Saul, who was at the head of the army that day. What makes him important in this story is not only that he's the king, but also his appearance. Saul wasn't that old in this story and he could have been in his thirties or forties even. That being said, he was also described as a warrior that once had the backing of God. Not at this time, though. He was also a very tall and very strong man. It says in First Samuel chapter nine and verse two, it says, quote, "And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man." And it goes on to say, "And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any other of the people." End quote. What the Bible's trying to say here is that he was pretty tall and he was pretty strong. He was a big guy. When he led his men to battle, he was automatically looked upon as the prime champion, or at least the prime choice of what a champion should look like. After Goliath stepped forward, and you saw even then a sheer size difference between Saul and Goliath, Goliath gave his challenge to the army of Israel. Notice in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 11, it says, quote, when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid, quote. This was supposed to be the prime warrior of Israel, yet Saul cowered before his enemy, and before his men too, by the way. Think about how the army must have felt when they saw their own king cower before this guy. It's really almost unbelievable. But let's take a look at our last character, and his name is David. He's kind of the, the main reason why this book is focusing uh, on this moment. At this point in the story, David was at minimum a teenager, probably towards his late teens. There are some you know kid-type stories that make him out to be like a young boy, like a little boy, but a closer look at Hebrew culture puts him in his teenage years. But that being said... David was still too young to be considered for the army and he was off tending his father's sheep. He's instructed in verses 17 and 18 to take food to his brothers who were actually in the army serving. Keeping in mind that by this time that David's introduced in the story, Goliath has already been mocking Israel for over 40 days. 40 days! They're in the hills and Goliath comes out mocking them. That means... Forty days had passed, and not one had the courage or the intestinal fortitude to meet Goliath in battle. When David got to the camp, he met his brothers with the supplies that he had been instructed to carry. He accomplished his mission. That is when Goliath, at his appointed time, came out for that day and challenged and defied the army of Israel. But this time, David heard it. It says in verse 24, quote, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, Goliath, fled from him and were sore afraid, end quote. They then talked about what kind of rewards the king would give the champion who stood up to Goliath. This, of course, was kind of ironic because even though they spoke highly of the uh, rewards, not one man stood up. That and King Saul was still cowering, hoping somebody else would go out to meet this guy. In verse 26, the scripture says that David has a response. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. David was full of righteous indignation against this man who would come out and say these things, but no one from Israel would meet the challenge. This next part is important because in verse 28, his brothers who were in the army, mind you, they get embarrassed and angry because they're a part of the army. (laughs) They're a part of it. So they're listening to him. So they feel convicted about this. They ridiculed David for even thinking of of what they were thinking was insulting to their pride. Right off the bat, there is opposition from people who were supposed to be on the same side. Somebody stands up. David stands up and says something, and he receives opposition from people who were supposed to be on his side. That's important to note. What does David say in his response? In verse 29, it says, quote, and David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? Now I can somewhat see or really picture this scene that he's being surrounded by the members of the army. His brothers challenge him in front of these same men. And essentially he responds, is there not a cause to stand up? In verse 30, he makes the challenge to the men around him. I can, I can see this as he looks around to the men and says, Well, is there not a cause? Are you going to stand up? Are you going to stand up? Is there not a cause? Think for a moment about this scene. You have a young man who comes into a military camp of fearful men who were supposed to be a part of a national army standing up to foreign enemies. I can imagine these men felt shame as David went by challenging them. But who was going to counter what he said? Who was going to stand up to the boy's challenge? Nobody. Not his brothers, not their companions, and surely not even the king. What we do see is that word about David started to get around. He was then brought before the king. And then when Saul beheld him, David said, Starting in verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. talking about the Philistine. Thy servant will go out and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from, from his youth. End quote. Was this just a case of what they call little man syndrome on David's part? This is basically, you know, what they say, a shorter person who acts bold and brave to compensate for their lack of size. (laughs) That, or it's more commonly used about chihuahuas, you know, you know, these little dogs are so like bold and brave, they'll take on these massive dogs and. Ironically enough, many of these massive dogs will bow to the Chihuahua. It's kind of funny how that works out. Not always, though. I've seen some pit bulls. We won't go there. <laughs> but I I don't believe this is really the case with David. This is not a shorter person who's acting out of pride or whatever. David's motive was pure and not based in pride. David's character really comes out here because he demonstrated that he did not the heathen who blaspheme God. He told Saul how he had previous victories with large animals as a shepherd and basically tried to build confidence that, hey, I can do this. And he said that the Philistine is no different. He said that God will deliver him out of the hand of Goliath. Saul then tried to put the hardened armor and sword upon David, but David refused it because I, I can imagine that the armor didn't fit him anyways. He said that basically I hadn't been proved with it or basically that he hadn't trained with this armor. He instead just took a staff and five smooth stones from the brook and he went to go meet Goliath on the field. This next part is actually pretty amazing because being a former sergeant in the United States Marine Corps, I can imagine the interaction on the battlefield. Let's look at verses number 41 through 47. It says in verse number 41, quote, And the Philistine came and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he had disdain for him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that you come with me with staves or a staff? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, "'Come to me, and I will give your flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field.'" (laughs) Basically, he tells David, "'Come here, boy. You want to play war? I'll show you what war's about.'" I can really see the, the interaction here playing out this way. It says in verse 45, "'Then David said to the Philistine, "'Thou comest to me with a sword.'" and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee, and I will give the carcass of the hosts of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air, unto the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And all the assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. End quote. Wow, the boldness, the fearlessness to stand before a massive warrior and not only trade words back and forth, but be willing to come forth and put his weapons in front of his mouth. Now keep this in mind, this is a teenage boy, and that teenage boy acts more of a man than a whole army that was on the hilltop who claimed to be a part of Israel. Now we have these two about to engage in one-on-one combat. Starting in verse number 48, it says, And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in the bag, and took thence a stone, and slung it, and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon the face of the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine, and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof, and slew him, and cut off the head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose, and shouted, and pursued the Philistines, until thou come to the valley, and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way of Shariam and the, unto Gath, and unto Ekron, which are basically the cities of uh, the Philistines. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines, and they spoiled their tents. And this, gets, this is even better. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in the tent. <laughs> now, just to recap here, Goliath closed in, armed to the teeth. Now, you think about this moment. David doesn't have a whole lot of armor on or any armor really at all, and he's got a staff and a sling. And he's a teenage boy, 15, 16, around that age or so. And he's closing in to battle with a man who's highly armored. In mid-stride, David took a stone from his bag and slung it towards his heavily armored soldier. The stone sunk into Goliath's head and he fell over. Now, it says that, it, it dunk like caved his head a bit. It didn't say that it killed him though, because it said that when David came up to him, he took Goliath's sword and slew him and then cut off his head. So maybe he was still partly alive, but severely and dramatically, you know, injured from the sling, you know, really cracking his head open. But David came over to finish the job and then he cut off his head. <laughs> now that's awesome. <laughs> Notice that one, teenage boy's bravery and really his entrance into manhood inspired a whole army to fight. Imagine, a teenage boy met a giant of a man on the battlefield. Look, did David have some reservation about doing this? You know what, I'm sure that he did. But it was the overwhelming drive to stand up and do what is right and set aside that fear that pushed him forward. He decided that despite the adversity he received from his own people, he was going to meet this unbeliever on the battlefield and show him that there was a God in Israel and that he had a champion. David wasn't some sort of superhuman or Avenger or Marvel comic superhero, or whatever. He was an average person, but with an power of God upon him. He chose to rely upon the power of God instead of his own strength. There are some very powerful lessons that we can learn here. And we can tend to think that, that, you know what, hey, we're so much smarter, so much more advanced and enlightened compared to these people of the past. But we're not really that much different. Take away the technology and all the toys, and you're still left with the people who still have the same types of attitudes The same types of personalities as we have today. Adversity can come in many forms, but a person's character is truly tested in how they respond to it. We have a saying in the Marine Corps that you can say all sorts of things about what you think you're just going to do in a combat scenario. But we truly find out who the real men are, who the real heroes are, when the bullets actually start flying. Now, this can be applied to many different situations, even with what we consider as normal life. It starts with a problem or a call to address a situation. There are going to be many who say, not I, or I'm not going to risk my neck for that. This could be a more personal, moral problem, or it can be even a national one. Then there's one who chooses to stand up, but then He or she will receive criticism from the very people who were supposed to be on their side. But of course, mind you, wouldn't do anything in the very first place. That person has the choice to either stop there or push on and pursue. But how many cave in to that initial pressure? A lot. The ones that decide that their conscience is worth more than the criticism, then they go on to face the challenge. They can either conquer it or die trying. All of a sudden, hope is sparked in the people who once criticized that individual. That hope turns into an action, and a group of people succeed to accomplish something great. The one that gets the credit was the one that chose to stand and take action first. History is filled with these men and women, mind you, but something's very different in this story. The almighty God of the Bible chose to use a man named David, who was not even grown, mind you. (laughs) And he chose to stand to conquer and to inspire those around him. God used the smaller things to stand against the larger evil. It wasn't a man's charisma that made the difference or some pre-battle speech that made, you know, inspired the men to go to war. But it was a young man who had the power of God upon him that made all the difference in the world for a nation. How about us? How does this apply to us in our daily lives? You know, it doesn't have to be something dramatic. It could be something like being tested by peer pressure at your workplace. You know, (laughs) this is actually kind of funny because we tend to think that peer pressure stops after you get out of high school, but that's definitely not true. I wouldn't have done half the crazy things I would have, I did do when I was a younger person if it weren't for peer pressure. Now, if you claim to be a Christian, do you give in to peer pressure to make yourself seem like you're one of the boys or the same as the people around you? For example, do you choose to utter the same curse words or swear words or laugh at the filthy jokes? Or maybe... You don't want to be looked at as a Christian because you don't want to be thought to be weird. And so you keep your mouth shut. There are so many examples, but it only gets worse from here. What if you're asked or told to do something that not only violated your conscience, but it's something that's not right. There's a choice that has to be made there. What if the choice that is given to you is something that's illegal. You know it's illegal, but if you don't do it, you're going to lose your job anyways. Now, isn't that a dilemma? Well, you have a moral and ethical dilemma here that you have to choose. Are you going to choose the side of God or are you just going to go with the flow? We have so many right now that are facing this kind of choice with the federal government trying to get companies to mandate vaccines. Now, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but to do this is distinctly anti-American to violate people's rights when it comes to their bodies. Now, let me get me started on that one. We do see the heathen try to mock God when they say that, oh, well, they're bold and brave for their debauched lifestyles, but there is no bravery in choosing to be a reprobate. What is brave? is standing outside the general idolatrous population and standing for God. We are also not talking about a God, little g-God, of your own making, that you want the Bible to picture as your little g-God. There's a lot of people who walk around with their pocket Jesus. Now, that's a message all in itself. (laughs) We're talking about the complete and absolute teaching of God, and everything that he defines as moral and good. That decision is not going to be a popular one in this world, especially nowadays where people are more willing to be open and filthy in their communications. The enemies of God will be sure to mock and despise you, but know that they hate the God that you serve, and it's not really you. It's only for a relatively short amount of time as well, because everyone will reap what they sow. The book of Galatians, chapter 6, and verse 7 says, quote, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Verse 8 says, For he that soweth to his flesh shall the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. End quote. The story here in 1 Samuel 17 is one that's pretty rich with interactions that we can really learn from both in what to do and what not to do. When a person chooses to stand for what is right, the Lord will be with him. Boldness and fearlessness in your workplace or in any given situation can make all the difference in the world for the cause of Christ. Little did David know we would be reading about his exploits thousands of years later and the lessons that they teach. It's not that just the Bible tells about these kind of stories, but history is filled with these stories of God being with the people in victories, in trials, and even tragedies. Either way, God gets the glory in these magnificent stories that are told. I hope this is encouraging and to help embolden you, even though this world is getting darker. In the words of Jesus Christ, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, and verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I want to thank you for listening. and Be sure to follow us on the podcast media. Take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content and remember to find your refuge and strength in our mighty fortress.